Yeah, well, I know what it's like to I know what it's like to have a changing schedule. I've had about six jobs in the last six years, so yeah, <laughs> schedules changed around quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, we love uh, being sleep deprived for not not because uh, you actually are sleep deprived, but because your sleep schedule is constantly thrown into flux. My sleep schedule is mostly normal. It's it's the every other part mm. of my day. <laughs> I I started waking up 15 minutes later because it's kind of up to me when I come into the shop. Not really, but there's like to a certain degree, it's up to me. And I was like, what if instead of showing up at 4.45, I showed up at 5 o'clock? And it's crazy to think that that 15 minutes would make a big difference, but it has made a big difference in my life. Nice. nice. <laughs> I feel a lot better when the alarm goes off at 4.45 compared to 4.30. Yeah, I get up like about a half an hour before I really need to because mm-hmm. there's some stuff like doing Spanish practice that I find easier to make myself do if I do it in the morning before I go to work than like after when I come home. And I'm like, I don't want to do this shit yeah. now. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, if you are in at all a morning person, you got to get as much shit done in the morning as you can because yeah. morning motivation exists afternoon motivation does not like well, that was the thing it's like when I was, I was getting ready to start like you know and i'm trying to figure out okay what are this stuff where am i going to move stuff time wise mm-hmm. and i was like oh well i'll just do all this stuff in the afternoon after i get out and then immediately the first week i'm immediately like that was no that plan's not gonna work <laughs> <laughs> that was a bad I don't know yeah, why I thought that being, was being uh, <laughs> sitting like doing work for eight hours and then uh, getting home and being like, "Wow, that was a that was a day." I better get back to work. Yeah, I mean, if I'm if I'm within four hours of my bedtime, I am in one of the anamorph transition poses, transforming into the sleepy time tea bear. <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, I'm useless. Don't ask me to do anything. <laughs> Well, I would normally agree, but that's where most of the all the other stuff I have to do is in. Mm. <laughs> like, is in that time period. That's so rough. That is one of the things I love about getting up insanely early, is when someone asks you to do something at 8 o'clock, you can be like, whoa there, cowboy. That may as well be midnight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to another episode your weekly episode of work stoppage my name is john i'm dan and i'm lena and we are an entirely listener supported show so thank you so much for your support on patreon if you're not in the discord already go ahead and hop on in there it's a great place to talk more about what we talk about on the show if you don't have stickers yet and you are a patron just message us on patreon and we will get them to you asap and if you want to help the show a little bit more you can always leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts or wherever you think it will help yeah so Last week, we talked about, you know, everybody was gearing up for the big nurses strike in New York City, where there was the potential for as many as 17,000 nurses at private hospitals across the city to go on strike. And between the show that, you know, where we actually recorded prepping that (laughs) uh, and then actually when the strike started, 
over like 10,000 of those 17,000 nurses were able to reach tentative agreements. Basically, the pressure of the strike forced their employers into signing a better deal with the nurses than they had previously been offering. However, uh, when we got around to last Monday, there were still 7,000 nurses at specifically Montefiore and Mount Sinai hospitals who had not reached new deals. And so they hit the picket lines again with over 7,000 nurses, which despite the fact that it's less than half of the, you know, the original potential size of the strike. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Um, and so just to, to recap, you know, if you didn't listen to that episode, if you forgot specifically what the nurses are striking over, this will shock you. If you've ever heard about any other of the nurses strikes we've covered (laughs) are unsafe staffing, and stagnant wages. Mm. And so, you know, this is basically every, you know, group of nurses in the country for more or less are facing these same problems because of the similar approaches to maximizing profit that all of these private healthcare companies have taken, which has, they've largely focused on slashing the number of nurses in their employ in order to cut labor costs at the expense of patient care. And, uh, you know, New York City is in no way exempt from these trends. Yeah, I was really surprised. I mean, in the um, in some of the sources, we actually have a, a quote here from Betty Matthew, an RN at the Montefiore Hospital in the Bronx, who explained, In the emergency department, I sometimes care for 20 patients at a time instead of the safe standard of three to six patients. This is not safe or fair for nurses or patients. It leads to worse patient outcomes, and it increases the risk of patient death. And that 20 20 patients at a time, I mean, that is so unbelievable. I mean, I mean, believable in our system, but like so unacceptable. I mean, it. they say it increases the risk of patient death. That's not a joke at all when the actual amount that a single nurse should have to deal with is, you know, up to six. No, yeah, this is the kind of information it's important to keep in your pocket for when somebody tells you that, like, you know, when going out on strike means they don't care about their patients. It's actually like, no, it really means quite exactly the opposite. And it, it seems like uh, a lot of people realize that it means quite exactly the opposite because they the nurses saw a huge amount of support from the city as soon as they launched the strike. So we had members of many other unions, including the Teamsters, showed up to support them, as did members of New York City chapters of the PSL, DSA, and other organizations. Hundreds of nurses and supporters demonstrated in front of three Montefiore hospitals and Mount Sinai, demanding the hospital management agree to hire more nurses. So it's kind of interesting. I am always wondering what the state of public opinion on these kinds of things is because the media is so uniform about pretty much always backing the bosses. Um, So it's really, really heartening to see people in, you know, especially as influential of a population center like NYC show out in these kind of numbers. Yeah, absolutely. And this strike is also a good example of one of the things that we've talked about a lot on the show, which is that as much as we advocate, you know, for reforms in labor law, improvements to the existing legal structure around labor, as much as we, you know, would like those things to be passed, ultimately the only one who's ever going to enforce those laws is the workers. And the reason I mention that is because nurses have pointed out that New York actually passed a safe staffing law back in 2021, but it just doesn't get enforced. So, like, it falls upon these nurses 
essentially, to enforce that law via a strike because the state has simply refused to do so. And and they pointed to clear violations of this by the fact that Mount Sinai has over 500 staff positions currently vacant in the city, and Montefiore has over 700, which, like, that, like, 1,200 vacancies for mm-hmm. nurses is an absolutely wild number. <laughs> yeah, when... Like 17,000 workers were supposed to go on strike when in reality, 1,850,000 workers, (laughs) yeah, 18.5 thousand workers should have been going on strike. Yeah, and uh, and you know the the response from the hospital management is always like, we've tried to hire nurses, but there's a shortage of them. Uh, the problem with that argument is that it's uh, not true. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, in spite of the fact that they have these 1,200 openings, there are actually more than enough licensed nurses, not just in the country, but even specifically in New York State, to fill them. In fact, the number of people with nurses' licenses in New York has actually increased over the last couple of years, which is it does differ th- than many other states. It's just that the companies refuse to hire enough workers or pay the workers at their current locations enough out of a desire to slash labor costs at the expense of the health of patients and the livelihood of nurses. And like speaking to this specifically, like in an interview with Left Voice, Michelle Gonzalez, who's an ICU nurse at Montefiore, said that the staffing levels were so low and the facilities so insufficient at her hospital that the patients have to be treated in hallways, including people being forced to be changed or undressed with little to no privacy. And so nurses have been fighting for hospitals to invest in the facilities and allow them to treat every patient with the best quality of care that they can, can provide, but management's just refused to do so. Yeah, and this is also, I mean, with the huge rise in uh, COVID cases that has come up that has really overwhelmed a lot of uh, hospitals at the same time. But, uh, I mean, showing the depravity of management, while unionized Teamster drivers with UPS refused to deliver to the hospitals where the nurses were on strike, others documented the company using supervisors, not workers, as scab drivers in violation of the union contract. Union workers stated that they plan to file a grievance, but it will likely have little impact, only further emphasizing how important the upcoming contract negotiations from UPS are and with the Teamsters. Yeah. And, I mean, as well as the scab UPS managers, the hospital scrambled to hire scab nurses to cover for the striking ones. More Perfect Union documented ads from the hospitals offering scab nurses up to $300 an hour after yeah. bulking at the, the middling wage increase asked for by the union nurses. They were also offered bonuses to scab nurses who agreed to work for work for two 10-hour shifts in a 24-hour period, which, in, in going along with the ignoring laws of, say, staffing, that is also illegal under New York law to work two 10-hour shifts in a 24-hour period due to, uh, you know, resting time laws. Yeah, well, it's a it's really an illustration of the fact that like the only new tactics that these companies can think of is like, well, just violate the contract more often and break the law harder and see if that works. Yeah, and and these are the same people who are have been assailing nurses as not caring about their patients for mm-hmm. striking, while now suggesting that the right thing to do is to have nurses out on their floor who have worked 19 hours out of 24 hours. If I'm a patient, I would like to know that the person treating me 
uh, has had more than four hours of rest in a 24-hour period because it's simply not safe to be doing anything important when you have had that little rest. I, like, mm-hmm. it's, I just can't imagine having a ner- like g- g- having a nurse who is fa- basically on the verge of falling asleep on the shift, uh, undressing me in the middle of a hallway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's. In, you know, the the biggest city in the richest country on earth, like, that's the conditions that people are faced with. It's it's a joke and, and an awful one at that. But one of the things, though, that I think is also important to take away from how desperate, you know, the, the managers were to hire these scab nurses. Again, $300 an hour. Just an, <laughs> an unfathomable wage. Uh, but... That 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 level of pay does show just how, you know, up against the ropes management was put by the union. And that paid off. Like, it only took three days to end this strike. on Early on Thursday morning, again, just a couple of days after they went out on the picket line, the union announced that they had reached a tentative agreement with both hospitals and would be ending the strike. And so, I mean, I'll throw in our standard disclaimer of, like, I would prefer you have the nurses vote mm-hmm. before you end the strike but i guess at least in the case of nurses you might actually have some amount of reason for being like look we are already kind of restrict striking a little bit like to allow emergency room nurses to provide some minimal level of care so we're going to go back to work while we ratify it so you know it's kind of a gray area as far as that democracy angle goes specifically with with healthcare workers but With that, you know, asterisk out of the way, the new agreement that the bargaining team signed with the or is proposing that nurses vote on with these two hospitals does include some truly big wins. And so I don't think it's necessarily very likely that they would not be approved. So um, the new agreement will, for the first time, include hard requirements forcing the hospitals to actually hire enough nurses. Specifically, it requires both Mount Sinai and Mount Montefiore to hire hundreds of new nurses and provides for strict financial penalties for violating that agreement. It also includes an average raise of 6% per year over the three-year contract, as well as some bonuses that essentially kind of... Uh, even out to an average of about a 7% raise per year. Mm -hmm. It's a little weird with the way that you count the bonuses. Uh, But basically, immediately, all the nurses will see a 7% raise and a $1,000 bonus, and then we'll get raises in subsequent years of the three-year deal. They also want improvements to dental and vision benefits and a commitment from both hospitals to expand facilities enough to eliminate the need for hallway beds by November of this year. So... I mean, that's hitting really all of the key points Mm -hmm. that the nurses were going out there to fight for. So I think, honestly, like, it really just showed both the unity that these nurses had been able to build in the run-up to the strike and also just, you know, how incredibly important and vital their work is and how they, how as even with management willing to pay these obscene wages for scabs, they still weren't able to replace, you know, the work that all these folks do. 
Yeah, and I think the stipulation about eliminating the need for hallway beds is really revealing about, you know, how genuinely these healthcare professionals care about their patients because it's mm-hmm. like you can have adequate staffing levels and still not have enough space for all your patients. So that kind of demand is really explicitly for the benefit of the patients and really lets you know whose side they're on, so to speak. Uh, and we did hear from Nancy Hagens, president of NYSNA, who said, quote, this is a historic victory for New York City nurses and for nurses across the country. NYSNA nurses have done the impossible, saving lives night and day throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. And now we've again shown that nothing is impossible for nurse heroes. Hell yeah. And another thing that they've shown is that strikes work. Correct. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Which is exactly why (laughs) we have the next story. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. So we're going to be following up on the Supreme Court uh, ruling or, well, future ruling, the case that's going on right now between Glacier Northwest Incorporated and the the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, Local 174, because on January 10th, there were some oral arguments heard in the case. And I just want to quick go over a little bit of what this actually means, because we cannot ignore this. This is a super important case that's being ruled on by our fascist Supreme Court. And, I mean, the lower courts had already ruled on the side of labor, which would say that, you know, the strike was legal. But, like, actually, I don't want to jump ahead. So let's quick uh, go over what the case actually is about. And we're going to be—a lot of this, these details I pulled from uh, a Vice article that was an interview with Kate Bronfenbrenner— and so Glacier Northwest's argument is that cement workers that had gone on strike caused some of the cement to harden when they walked off the job, even though the workers had left the trucks running in order to try to protect the cement. The company did not get to the trucks in time to take care of it, and so the cement hardened. The company suffered some losses, and because of those losses, the company is suing the union uh, for destruction of, of property. And the strike itself was ruled legal. And from the union's perspective, this is basically a direct attack on the right to strike if the Supreme Court sides with capital instead of labor. And uh, this will actually kind of open up the courts to bring any sorts of economic damages against uh, unions by companies that happened due to a strike for like example if the teamsters strike that is coming up at ups uh doesn't deliver packages that you know end up having spoiled like food or or spoiled anything in it that could lead to ups suing the teamsters for damage uh for damages which is a, a way of providing economic repercussions specifically for striking and for them not meeting the demands of the workers who have been forced to strike by the company's intransigence. Yeah. I mean, it's just absolutely baffling to me that there you could even imagine a world where the legal standard is that like, oh, you went on strike and when you stopped doing your job, part of which was, say, preventing the hardening of cement... Now that cement is hardened and you're responsible for that, it's like, it's not like they they walked onto the site and smashed everything up, you know, like equating those two things is like absolutely ludicrous. Yeah. And I mean, like uh, where a lot of this is coming from is basically the NLRA, when it was originally passed, it, 
essentially set up a system via which the NLRB became the, you know, coordinating body that regulated whether a strike was legal, whether it wasn't, and ruled on things like unfair labor practices and basically adjudicated disputes about labor law. And that allowed the board to basically preempt state law regarding strikes by saying, no, we have a federal law about this. We are the governing body on this. We get to decide whether this is legal. And that even, and there were exemptions to that included in previous doctrines, which basically said like, okay, okay, there are limits to this. It's like if, you know, the striking workers go in and burn down the factory, then they can be sued under state law or something extreme like that. What the, the, this case is arguing and what it seems like the Supreme Court is poised to do is to say, oh, no, no, you, do, you don't have a, a federal protection from being sued for striking. Property rights are far, far more important than that. We can't be limiting the property rights of business owners in any way whatsoever. So, in fact, we must allow companies to sue work, any workers for striking at any time because if we don't, some property could be lost. <laughs> like that, I, that, oh, and I no. think that this, I mean, like, and this is easily extendable to even non-unionized work, which could oh, sure. easily be if, like, if something gets damaged at work while you are working, then technically, if this were to pass, the companies could start suing individuals. I mean, I don't see a reason why that wouldn't be the case. Yeah, and and in an article about this from Liberation News, I think they did a good job of summarizing like the landscape that will be resulted from this case where they said, quote, any action by union members that is perceived in the eyes of the employer's legal team as violating state law could become an immediate lawsuit without any ruling by the NLRB. Unions will find themselves forced to think carefully about the implications of strike activity and whether it will incur insurmountable legal costs and additional retrograde court rulings rather than winning badly needed concessions for workers, end quote. And yeah, I think that really shows what's at stake here because fundamentally, even, you know, the very liberal NLRA, which we could get, you know, we can have a really in-depth theory discussion about the the role that played in mobilizing or demobilizing the labor, labor movement and its level of militancy. But regardless of that, it essentially said, like, look, we understand strikes are meant to disrupt business. They kind of just do that as a default. That's like the whole thing about striking. <laughs> so there has to be some level of indemnification for workers who strike because it's understood that this is a mechanism by which people attempt to disrupt business. And that's normal <laughs> and should be accepted. And this is essentially saying, no, we don't have to accept that. In fact, the disruption of business is basically violence. This is essentially settling into the the same sorts of anti-worker talking points that we've been hearing from the Biden administration, from South Korea, from the UK, mm-hmm. from Canada, where we are seeing capitalist regimes, whether they be quote-unquote liberal or quote-unquote conservative, are portraying attempts by workers to win better conditions for themselves by striking as a form of violence against society as a whole, uh, which is an incredible piece of rhetorical uh, <laughs> jujitsu, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, well, and I mean, also, this this, w- this would structurally incentivize unions to be as co- business collaborative and class mm-hmm. collaborationist as possible. Because if you have a militant rank and file, ready to strike, ready to take action union, you're going to end up with a bunch of lawsuits and getting slapped with major fines and fees. Right. And, and 
And if you're a big union that maybe, you know, has been around for a long time and has a lot of members and has developed things like, say, a large pension fund, mm-hmm. then, you know, you can be as militant as you want. But if you've got, you know, 100,000 workers a couple of years from retirement, then they're going to be pretty reluctant, understandably, to put things like their pension fund at risk to massive lawsuits. And that's exactly the situation that they want workers to be put in. Uh, Well, and I don't think it's naive to think that the Supreme Court will rule in in the favor of capital here, because, I Mm -hmm. mean, in the 2018 case of Janice V. Asmey and the 2021 case of the Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid, uh, conservative majorities handed down two anti-union rulings uh, in those cases, and now the court is even more conservative than then. So yeah. I, I don't think that this is any sort of like fear-mongering. This is really more of a, re- a, a real situation that we are likely to face. Yeah, I mean, even if you look at the cases outside of just the labor ones, their rulings have been getting consistently more conservative at an, at an increasing rate for like the last, I don't know, Five years, ten years, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's they're following the general legal philosophy of all conservatism, which is that there must be in groups whom the the law protects but does not bind, and out groups mm-hmm. whom the law binds but does not protect. And the in group being business owners, the ruling class, and the out group being you know the rest of us. <laughs> um, and, and all the oral arguments, you know, that were just held this week certainly indicate that that the court will rule in favor of Glacier Northwest. So I think that where we should be focusing our efforts, you know, as people who care about the labor movement is not concerning whether or not how this case will be ruled, but in trying to figure out, okay, well then what are the shift in tactics that have to be done like to preserve the right to strike while doing our best to protect, you know, the resources that major unions have built up because, you know, there's going to have to be some law breaking as there has been always (laughs) to fight back against this sort of draconian thing, but it it has to be smart. It has to be done in a way that doesn't disillusion people from the labor movement. If there are losses in, in between, you know, before there are victories. So as awful as this case is, I think the thing that it really sets before us as a task is to determine how our tactics going to need to change in order to preserve the right to strike by any means necessary, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, um, for our next story, we're going to be kind of doing a follow-up, but, I mean, also this is uh, a little bit of a news story. So back in ye old April 1st of last year, you might remember that we celebrated the first unionized Amazon warehouse in the U.S., uh, and as of January 11th, the NLRB has finally certified those results after over 40 weeks. Wow. The union, I mean, the union has been fighting for this recognition after winning at every turn. I mean, there's a, a statement from Chris Smalls who celebrated the ruling saying Amazon workers won fair and square. And now it's time for Amazon to quit stalling, obey the law, respect their workers and sit down to the bargaining table. But still, after all that, Amazon still has until January 25th to appeal this decision, which, you know, I mean, the NLRB can grant or deny the request after reviewing uh, after reviewing what the appeal would be. Uh, the company continues to allege, though, that the election was unfair and CEO Andy Jassy tell- told the New York Times that, quote, this has a real chance to end up in the federal courts. 
Like, and I mean, like, I don't think that uh, that's necessarily going to happen, but I think that Amazon is going to do its damnedest to try to make it happen. Yeah, I mean, they shouldn't even have this kind of stalling tactic available to them, first mm-hmm. off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, this is one of those things where, of course, there's always the chance they could get this put in some in front of some crank judge who's just like, yeah, the founders clearly didn't want unions to ever exist. So sure, whatever you want, Mr. Jassy, we'll, we'll rule for it. Like, yeah, there's always that chance because there are those Federalist Society pod people that are on a lot of the, the federal courts. <laughs> but I mean, even most of the conservative judges would default to being like, well, no, this is a, I mean, it's pretty obvious that the law says you have to certify the union. But that that doesn't really matter because what this gives Amazon the opportunity to do by dragging this out and dragging this out and dragging this out is to continue harassing and firing pro-union workers, running them out of the company in an effort to weaken the union so that when they do eventually have to, you know, accept it as a fact that by that time, so many people will have been harassed, so many people will have been driven out of JFK 8, that they can then, moving into the negotiation period, try and essentially get a decertification vote going, which is clearly their ultimate goal. Right. Yeah. And then ALU's lawyer, Seth Goldstein, told Vice, in August, we were forced to go through a 24-day hearing that cost tens of thousands of dollars. Amazon now has the obligation under the National Labor Relations Act to meet and bargain with us, and they are and and there are penalties for them not to bargain. If they refuse to bargain, they have to pay bargaining. Uh, they have to pay bargaining comp. They have to go to mandatory federal mediation. They have to issue reports on the progress of mediation. And I mean, this I think also highlights another issue that Amazon has been attempting to bring to the union, and that is that of a financial penalty, because mm-hmm. the workers themselves are, you know, the dues-paying members. And I mean, I guess some of this money is also coming from donations from solidarity funds and such. But still, that money should be going directly to the workers and not to, you know, these legal hearings that Amazon is forcing the union into. Yeah. Yeah. You have the company basically is it, they are maximizing the asymmetrical relationship between the, the company and the union. The company has infinite money and infinite lawyers to, and that, that like, as long as this goes on, basically the battle of attrition here only favors the company. So mm-hmm. they, they're really in a win-win position with this, the way that labor law works, because even if they lose every one of these cases, it takes so long, it gives them more time to attack the union. And if they win, then they win. Like there's it, everything works out in their favor because of how stacked the deck is for them. Yeah, there's not there's no incentive for them to move forward with any of this. There's barely even an incentive for them to follow the law, which yeah. is my favorite part of this show, playing playing the the incredible game of will the corporation observe the law? <laughs> the <laughs> yeah, answer usually, is usually you spin the no. wheel. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It just lands on no. But so, you know, we'll see yeah, like you said, we'll see if Amazon eventually ever recognizes the union, even just that they exist. We certainly don't expect them to ever bargain in good faith, uh, you know, without being forced to by the workers. And, and at the same time, you know, trending along, you know, to your question of will they follow the law, like they've continued to extend the suspension of worker Derek Palmer 
through the end of February, which has been repeatedly ruled illegal. And so I, there's really no reason to expect them to change course now. So while we're certainly glad that the NLRB finally ruled, certified the election like eight months or eight or nine months later, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this, you know, the fight for a contract at JFK eight is still, it's a long ways off and it's uh, going to be a, a, a knockdown drag out fight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we love, we're ready to slog through knockdown drag out fights, but let's jump over to something that's a little bit more, uh, upbeat. <laughs> uplifting. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to talk about, uh, grad students at Northwestern in Illinois, uh, who have voted six, uh, 1,644 to 114 in favor of unionization. That is a 93.5%, uh, majority voting. Yes. So they're, Unionizing with UE, uh, which represents almost 3,000 graduate students, the workers asked the university for voluntary recognition, pointing out their supermajority support, but the administration refused, forcing the election process to move forward pointlessly. So the union put out a five-point platform based on a survey they put together with around 1,900 respondents, and their goals included pay raises, professional standards in labs and classrooms, a grievance procedure to to address misconduct, comprehensive health care, and financial support for international students. I think it's so interesting with um, academic workers how often we see them asking for a grieve a formal grievance procedure. That's mm-hmm. something that I wouldn't have thought would have been so absent in so many institutions, but it seems like uh, it just isn't there most of the time. Yeah, well, and it's 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 also not like just that they want a grievance procedure, which is of course something every worker should have access mm-hmm. to. But I feel like with academic workers, one of the key things that's pointed towards is like specifically addressing like misconduct relating to sexual harassment mm-hmm. and racial harassment because, you know, the power dynamics between like senior tenured faculty and especially with administrators, the amount of power that they have over grad workers I mean, that gets just abused constantly. Uh, so, like, I think that it points to the, the, the need and just how deficient existing systems of accountability for these things are in, like, academia broadly and really is, has shown that the workers have seen through that and been like, look, I don't care if you put together a task force or some new policy. If you don't have a real way to enforce it, then it doesn't mean anything. And since, and clearly none of the existing procedures have done anything. And really it's going to take a union with actual power in order to do that. And I think that, you know, we're seeing grad workers understand that and overcome a lot of the propaganda from the administrations being like, no, we care about you. We'll, we, we hear you. We see you. Please don't unionize. <laughs> right. Well, and, you know, it, it took them eight years to get to this point. So this effort has, has been close to a decade in the making. And the workers are finally uh, experiencing the happiness of getting to join in solidarity with the Northwestern University Library Workers Union, who voted to unionize in December of 2021 and are still negotiating their contract over a year later. So we heard from Emily Lozier, a fifth-year PhD candidate in chemistry and NUGW co-chair, who said in an interview, quote, graduate students are not only just students, but also employees performing valuable labor for the universities who employ them. We're all people doing research, not just disembodied brains. We hope the message is clear that this isn't just some little band of rabble-rousing. This is the strong majority of your workforce saying that they want a say, end quote. 
Hell yeah. I mean, clearly. I mean, over 90% of the people voted in favor. And that, you know, to, to certify three, nearly 3,000 student graduate workers. I mean, that's yeah. a, a pretty huge amount. Talk about speaking with one voice. My God. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, there's no sign of this wave of organizing in academia slowing down and not just nationally, but even just in Chicago, because, you know, now these workers just won overwhelmingly their election. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to see another major election when grad student workers at the University of Chicago, basically just down the road from Northwestern, will also be voting to see if they will get their union with UE recognized officially by both the school and the state. So congratulations again to to these workers at Northwestern. Incredible work. Again, like you said, John, uh, basically a decade in the making and finally paying off huge. Mm -hmm. You you absolutely love to see it. And we'll be excitedly watching, you know, in a couple of weeks for that election at the University of Chicago. I think that we can be optimistic about that, considering how big of a victory this was. If there's, Mm. you know, a level of solidarity between universities or even just like, I mean, with this win, it will show people at the University of Chicago that they can win as well. Uh, I mean, union victories lead to more union victories. Yeah. And there is a lot of like, uh, you know, interaction between people who work at different colleges compared to some other industries where if you work at coffee shop A, you might never talk to somebody who works at coffee shop B. Yeah. Well, and speaking of union victories leading to possibly more union victories, Mm -hmm. we actually have another union that's been announced by REI workers, this time in Cleveland, who, while also asking for voluntary recognition, filed for an election at the same time with the NLRB, basically showing that they don't have a lot of confidence that REI will actually come to the table in good faith and recognize the clearly existing union. It sounds to me See, like they're just being prepared. Yeah, <laughs> I love that move because there's so many folks who they, they basically take the polite route where mm-hmm. they're like, we will ask you for voluntary recognition. We're going to win the election. But, you know, look... We'll give you the opportunity to voluntarily recognize it. Maybe it's a couple of days. Maybe it's a week. Maybe it's a couple of weeks, depending on the situation. I like that these workers are just like, we know REI is not going to recognize this <laughs> yeah. shit, so we'll just do them both at the same time. And, you know, REI you know, has not disappointed <laughs> in their <laughs> response. And, and, yeah, they, you know, unsurprisingly have refused to voluntarily recognize the union at the Cleveland REI location, but that's not going to stop this union drive. So these folks are organizing with the RWDSU, which is the same union that organized the unionized store in uh, Soho in New York City. Um, And of course, they would also join the store at Berkeley, which unionized with the UFCW. So they would become the third REI to unionize should they be successful. And I really loved the... uh, the look to labor history from a quote that we we saw in, in a statement that the workers put out, you know, when they announced their union from uh, one of the workers at the store, Dave Hine, who's a bike and ski mechanic, said, quote, 100 years ago, it was coal miners. 70 years ago, it was auto workers. Today, it's retail. We stretched ourselves thin, helping the company achieve its highest profit margin ever. And now we're being told that there aren't enough hours to go around due to corporate overbuying, end quote. Yeah, not the worker's fault. <laughs> 
Yeah, it, it, but the, but of course, as always, they're the ones who pay for it, and yet, you know, so ex- prompting exactly why these folks have decided to form a union. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and then in their announcement, the union laid out, and this is actually basically from an open letter that they put out along with, this is when they uh, asked for voluntary recognition, they put out an open letter via the RWDSU, uh, they spoke to the unilateral decisions made by management to put workers at risk by eliminating COVID-19 protections, such as masking requirements. They demanded better uh, black, indigenous, people of color uh, representation in hiring and retention within staff and management who currently don't represent the diverse community that their store is in. They demanded an end to understaffing, citing that only 55 workers were on staff during the busiest season of the year, which left them significantly understaffed as to where, where they should have had almost 70 or more employees at this time. Which this situation left staff unable to address a lot of the growing aggression that customers have been putting on the workers. Basically, I mean, if you've been in retail, you know that customers are the worst part of of working most of the time. I mean, I don't want to give management too much of a break there, but customers uh, (laughs) often are pieces of shit and uh, can make the job feel miserable. They also spoke to the two-tiered system of healthcare coverage that leaves part-time workers with far worse coverage than that of full-time employees. They coupled this demand with one for a gar- for guaranteed hours so that people were not forced into under 20-hour part-time employment as well as a path for to full-time employment for any worker who wanted to get there. Uh, additionally, and in this, this letter is uh, a little long, but it, it's really great that they are outlining so many of their demands. Uh, additionally, they demanded more transparency and accountability from management who have promised to discuss pay raises quarterly, but their store has not seen this initiative put into practice. They brought up that while their wages were increased to $15 an hour as part of the quote-unquote way forward, which you'll remember is part of the union-busting tactics that were used when the first stores at REI unionized, the initiative uh, was said to bring up wages to 1665, but that has not been implemented along with the quarterly reviews of wages, and so they're demanding that that be addressed. And they also wanted to talk about bonuses that were cut from their store despite their outperforming the revenue goals that they were set. And they have had no promises from management of reinstating these bonuses, even though they've literally met the demands of management. Yeah, I I actually think that their specific points about the shallow promises of that, like the way forward initiative Mm -hmm. are so important because, you know, we talk so much on the show about the tactics that bosses will use to try and discourage workers from unionizing. And of course, you know, we've talked about this with Starbucks. We've talked about this with other companies, but that's one of the most common is when a union drive shows up immediately, the company rushes to be like, Oh no, no, we, 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 we care about you. You don't need a union Uh, here. Here's a raise. You say you want a raise. Here's a raise. We'll definitely do that. And don't worry. We'll give you another raise in the future. Definitely don't unionize. But you know, as, and that's one of the reasons, you know, that we've, we've, have praised the messaging from Starbucks Workers United because when Starbucks has done that, they've come out immediately and been like, thank you, Starbucks, for doing this clearly in response to our union drive. (laughs) And also pointing out vitally, though, that anything that management gives unilaterally, management can take away unilaterally. 
And that's what's so important and I think that and revealing, you know, when with these workers' letter is that Again, that there was a promise that not only would the base rate of all workers go up to $15 an hour, but that eventually there would be more raises. And then that part just never happened. But there's no way to hold the company accountable unless you have a union and that's written into your contract. So I think it's really good to see the workers identifying that. That's like, hey, you know how you said we didn't need a union because you would give us this stuff anyway? Mm -hmm. And then you didn't do that? Really just proving our point of why we need a union? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they continued to go off all the way to the end of the letter. I mean, they closed it out by saying, quote, we love what we do. We love working with the members and customers who walk into REI Cleveland every day with consistency in pay and benefits and a union voice will be able to better support our members and customers. REI believes that, quote, a life outdoors is a life well lived, end quote. And as green vests in REI Cleveland, we believe it's made better with a union. Unionizing is a part of a healthy lifestyle. We at REI Cleveland ask REI to courageously embrace change and voluntarily recognize our efforts to form a union at REI store number 168 when we file with the National Labor Relations Board. We also call on REI to cease and desist from union busting techniques. We reject the now defunct website used to spread lies to green vests at Soho and Berkeley and the intimidation tactics deployed by management at REI Cleveland when we initially raised our concerns last year. Here at the co-op, we always come from a place of respect and we ask that you do the same. We are united and join in the words of REI Union Soho, quote, we are united in change, fighting for better working conditions and a life outside, end quote end quote again, I guess. And it's really great how they how they really went over, like, here are all the specific ways you have tried to fuck your workers. The now defunct <laughs> website you used to spread lies. I love how, like, sharp and to the point that is. That's like, when, when, when you just read, you know, out every little thing systematically that the company has done, it really doesn't leave a lot of room for people to misinterpret what you're saying. I think it's funny. I didn't actually look at the website, but the idea that the, the website is defunct is like they lost uh, their their battle against the union and so the website still exists but it's just it's just the exact same things that were on the website back during the old union busting campaign because <laughs> they're they're just like ah oh, well we lost i guess there is no need for this resource anymore which clearly sta- which clearly points out that the website was solely for union busting mm-hmm. yeah Absolutely. So solidarity with the REI workers in Cleveland. Uh, We look forward to y'all joining the REI union movement, becoming the third unionized store. And, you know, as developments happen in this union drive, we will keep all our listeners posted. But moving to an international story, we we joked a little bit last week during the cold open about uh, January becoming like stupid coup month, basically. Uh, But while the failed attempt at a coup in Brazil has gotten plenty of media coverage, one story that has gotten conspicuously less coverage, despite being far more deadly and having a being a much longer process, has been the coup and then the response to it in Peru. And so we thought it would be a good idea to try and dig into that a bit more because there really hasn't been very much coverage on what's going on there. Mm -hmm. And it it really, you know, reflects the status of the class struggle in Latin America right now. So, um, like really since last month, there have been mass protests against the regime that took power in Peru, uh, at the beginning of December in what is essentially a legislative coup against 
Pedro Castillo by the far right dominated uh, Peruvian Congress. Uh, basically, like just for some light background on this, uh, Peru's Fujimorista Congress had been blocking Castillo's agenda and attempting to destroy his administration since the day he took office. Uh, and upon discovering that he, that they finally had the votes to try and overthrow him and remove him from power, Castillo attempted to preempt them by ordering Congress dissolved and calling for a constituent assembly, allowing for the people of Peru to vote for a new, truly representative Congress. Uh, unfortunately, Castillo's attempt to do that failed largely, I, I think, due to some poor planning, as well as just the fact that he just didn't have... A, a fully organized base of support, at least in the in the halls of power, like he mm-hmm. didn't have the army on his side or the internal security services who were all siding with the right wing, and so that didn't pay off. And he was essentially immediately imprisoned by the new regime that took power behind uh, former Vice President Dina Boluarte. But despite the somewhat ramshackle nature of Castillo's attempt to get around this coup. Uh, the response from the people has clearly been far more intense and militant than the coup government expected that they would have to deal with. And there has been essentially almost constant protests for the last really like six weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they have largely centered around a few key demands. Obviously, one is to release Pedro Castillo unharmed, but then they tend to follow along the lines of dissolving the current right-wing Congress calling for new elections and for a new constituent assembly that actually represents the Peruvian people in order to rewrite the constitution of Peru, which was put in place during the fascist dictatorship of uh, Alberto Fujimori. And these protests have been, have faced deadly repression since day one. Mm -hmm. Um, Really starting in December, the earliest protests have been led largely by indigenous groups in Peru, especially from like the Aymara uh, rural people on like the, the, the borders with like Bolivia and, and, and Ecuador and, and other, you know, that region. And, and the, the rural areas have really shown a huge amount of resistance to the coup regime. And that, I mean, is partially because they were some of the biggest factors in Pedro Castillo's election itself. I mean, they were the mm-hmm, ones mm-hmm. who were originally fighting for it and were the biggest voting block that got Pedro Castillo into power. Yeah, and I mean, like, these protesters mean serious business. They, uh, I think, last week tried to take over an airport near the border with Bolivia, and they were unsuccessful. But, I mean, like, really shows that you are not messing around when you try to take over an airport. Yeah, I mean, specifically regarding that, uh, as of this writing, I believe about 49 people have so far been murdered by the coup government Mm. during these protests. About half of those deaths have come from two specific massacres, one of which is the the event you were referring to, John, where on December 15th, just about a week after the coup, uh, indigenous protesters blockaded the airport in the town of uh, Ayacucho, and state security forces fired into the unarmed crowd, murdering 10 protesters and severely wounding over 50 others. And then just last Monday, on January 9th, they carried out an even larger massacre in the, primary, uh, in the primarily Aymara city of Juliaca, killing 17 people, including two teenagers. So that's like 27 people in just two specific incidents. Yeah, that's disgraceful. And because there's been so much repression, I mean, the number getting up to 49 has been 
uh, has been, you know, a culmination of many different police killings and, and military killings over this period of, of unrest. Yeah. And so there was a, there was a brief pause in kind of the organized protests for the end of the year holidays. But once that finished, protests have turned now from, I guess, somewhat disorganized immediate reaction Mm -hmm. to the coup into a more organized militant fight back where you have, it's still being led by, you know, the organized indigenous movement, but also the trade unions of Peru have now strongly joined with indigenous federations and have marched all over the country. Thousands have marched in Lima to demand the resignation of the coup government every day since the Juliaca massacre. And in addition... They have shut, like totally shut down many rural towns with with highway blockades and protests. And cities as large as Cusco have seen huge swaths of business completely closed down by a general strike in response to the violence from the coup government. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, unsurprisingly, the right-wing coup government, which is completely backed by the U.S., which I will uh, point out is the reason that you have not seen nearly as much coverage of this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the sort of coup attempt in Brazil was clearly a, a bit of a farce uh, and kind of the last thrashings of the Bolsonaristas. Uh, the CIA was clearly not putting its full backing behind that, not expecting that necessarily to work. Whereas they had the full uh, the full package going in Peru, which includes largely suppressing reporting on this. And in response to these protests from the people, the only like concession made by the coup regime has been a vague promise to hold new elections soon. Mm. <laughs> Whatever that means. Great. Great. Yeah. I promise we can't even hold you to cause it's too vague. Yeah. Um, and- right. And I guess the, those elections would still be under the old constitution, which yes. is basically designed to get right wing forces into power. Yeah, it's set up specifically to favor the urban centers, which have been more controlled by the the um, country's elite, rather than the rural areas, which you know is largely indigenous peasantry, who are systematically disenfranchised, um, and they have no intention of changing that anytime soon. Um, and, and and they have also gone so far as to blame the protesters for the murder of their comrades by the state security forces, uh, specifically on a press conference on the 9th, the day of the massacre in Juliaca, uh, Boluarte said, quote, what you are asking for is a pretext to continue generating chaos in the cities. In peace and order, everything can be achieved. In the midst of violence and chaos, it gets more complicated. It becomes difficult. Yeah, difficult for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, this is the whole thing. This is like, oh, well, we you can't have strikes; they're disruptive. We can't have protests; they're disruptive. That's the point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, they're disruptive. We're trying to disrupt you yeah. from doing horrible things. You love like, you love disruption when it's some rich guy in a business suit telling you how he's going to change the face of Silicon Valley. But as soon as some workers are like. Hey, maybe we don't want to be uh, ruled over by a fascist coup government. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> That's way against the guidelines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, uh, Boliarte's prime minister went even further, falling into like the classic fascist ac- accusations of quote unquote outside agitators. Mm. Prime Minister Alberto Otarola called on security forces to continue their violent repression and. 
quote, to capture and prosecute those who are destroying the country financed by foreign interests and by dark money of uh, the dark money of drug trafficking. I'm like, motherfucker, it, it, the CIA is the one who supported the, cu- the coup. Like, it, it, every accusation is a confession. Correct. <laughs> like,. I mean, the, you hear this sh- bullshit all the time. Like, uh, fa- fascist forces will refer to uh, the MAS movement in Bolivia as a narco movement, like basically calling uh, Evo Morales a drug runner. This is all bullshit, especially due to the fact that, you know, Bolivia's Ugo Banzar dictatorship, which used Klaus Barbie, infamous SS member, mm-hmm. uh, as its chief of state security, the far-right government that these folks all loved, turned Bolivia into a narco dictatorship that was working with the CIA. So again, this is a, they are accusing the protesters of doing the things they themselves are the ones doing. Yeah, it's, so. a, it's 100% pure projection. The closer mm-hmm. a government is with the United States, the more drugs they run. Period. Full stop. Yeah, like, <laughs> no, it's true. Uh, and so... Uh, this past Saturday, the 14th, the fascist coup government even returned to the use of specific tactics from the years of the Fujimori dictatorship, where they started branding all protesters terrorists, mm-hmm. and a judge in the country ordered the preemptive detention of several protest leaders and ordered police to search the homes and belongings of protesters for the works of Marx, Lenin, and Stalin, which he cited as evidence that the defendants are, quote, members of a terrorist organization attempting the reconstitution of the Shining Path. Oh. Oh, shining path alert. <laughs> I can't believe that they're trying to do this kind of anti-communism. That's fucking wild. Search their houses for marks. If they have capital, they're a terrorist. Like, what is happening? Well, and yeah, the other thing I would just point out is I'm like, well, you know, if people have looked at the history of Peru, I do mm-hmm. not think it's the indigenous protesters who are looking to reconstitute the shining path. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, I mean, this is all just it's they, it's whatever lies they can come up with. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing as when you hear like fascists here calling the Democrats communists yeah. or whatever. It's just or or, or whatever the, they can get away with. Or when the Modi government calls anybody they don't like an urban yes. Maxilite. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's exactly the same thing. And so. But, you know, while the coup government is showing no signs of backing down, partially because they know they have the full backing of the the great hegemon, the United States, mm-hmm. the workers are not being cowed by any of this. They vowed to continue the general strike until the people are once again given a voice in their government. And, and actually last Thursday, January 12th, Boluarte's labor minister, Eduardo Garcia, actually resigned in protest of the violence against the protesters, saying the state must apologize and correct its errors. So like when even some of these bureaucrats are like, hey, you got, we can't, this is too far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, that this is clearly causing a lot of division, even within some members of the ruling class in Peru. So, um, and despite these vicious attacks from the state security services, the workers have refused to be silenced. Protests have continued to block highways, mines, airports, major roads all over the country. I will say it's been very weird when I'm reading stories about this to see people in the comments under stories about the violence being like, oh, hey, you know, we were scheduled to travel to Peru to visit these. (laughs) Should we still do that? Oh, my God. No, motherfucker. (laughs) There was a coup. There's violence. You can delay your fucking vacation plans. The or most turn fucking... your vacation plans into solidarity plans. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's just so fucking demented. It kind of has like a similar vibe to when you read like workers at insert major corporation are striking for their lives. 
here's the effects on your stock portfolio. It's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. No, there's there are people being like, is uh, is Machu Picchu still going to be open? Oh. <laughs> oh. It's 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 wild. But so, and you know, major unions in Peru have have said that there cannot be social peace in the country while the Peruvian people are being massacred, tortured, and killed for using their right to social protests. And but at the same time, with the coup government backed by the U.S. and refusing to back down, a negotiated settlement that actually appeases either side seems unlikely. And so, but at the same time, as the violence against the protesters grows, so does the class struggle. And so does it make it more and more obvious to the people that the coup government does not really rule in their name, but rules in the name of, you know, the forces of exploitation and the forces of the United States. So I, really, this is all just showing to a sign of an even more showdowns between the people and the fascist organizations supporting the coup government. And so we'll try and keep people posted on this, but it's not necessarily looking like there's going to be a nice, calm, peaceful solution. Well, it's kind of interesting because it seems like the coup government in some ways might be more successful if they knew how to de-escalate. But when you have the U.S. government oh, yeah. in your ear the entire time, that just doesn't it's never an option that's on the table. Yeah. yeah, like even Lasso's government in Ecuador mm-hmm. at least understood during the big strikes by indigenous protesters last year. They're like, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll tell them that we'll have a dialogue and invite them to meet the president. And now that didn't, you know, fool the indigenous protesters, but it did kind of divert some of the energy mm-hmm. into this bureaucratic negotiation process. And that kind of can help to slow down a militant movement. But these these folks in this coup government in, in under Bolarte in Peru have just been like, nope, repression, 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 repression. And it's like, well, okay, that might work. Or yeah. it might inspire a revolution. Yeah. If you yeah, stand exactly. around shouting, you want to go? You want to go? Eventually the people are going to say, yeah, it's time to go. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, like, one of the things that was pointed out in one of the news pieces where they were, um, what is, uh, I, I can never pronounce the name of that news source. The um, Kosichan News? Yeah, Kosichan News, where they did an interview kind of on the border of Bolivia and Peru. They announced, or they, they had shown that the workers actually, the workers and indigenous uh, leaders there actually have some control over certain parts of these areas. I mean, these blockades uh, or and and like strikes are actually have have real control in certain areas where they've actually almost expelled the military in certain very certain areas. It's not huge, but it is significant. And if that were to keep culminating in more of that sort of thing. You're right. Revolution could be a thing that is ha- that could happen. Yeah, I mean, hey, you the- could certainly end up with like a kind of Zapatista-esque situation, regional autonomous control, stuff like that. Maybe. The countryside surrounds the cities, so, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, we'll see what happens. That's but, right. I mean, moving to some repression here at home in the United States... We've got a story this week out of Texas where one of the, you know, big first big militant strikes in the United States of 2023 has actually come from incarcerated workers. Yeah. So on Tuesday the 10th, a hunger strike in prisons across the state of Texas began protesting indefinite solitary confinement and other poor conditions in the state carceral system. Over 300 prisoners participated at the start of the strike, and between 70 and 120 were still striking as of Friday the 13th. Uh, We don't have a ton of updated numbers on this as of right now. 
but uh, the prisoner's health was being monitored by prison officials and have threatened to force feed any of those who have participated in these uh, these because well, the strike is a uh, is a hunger strike. And uh, they they threaten to force feed anyone whose health is deteriorating. Uh, The prison rights activist Brittany Robertson relayed the message from six of the striking prisoners across three of the prisons, saying, quote, Our protest will remain peaceful and spans all races and religions to improve the conditions for all within the confines of the TDCJ, which is the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, as of November... Uh, they have more than 500 of these prisoners have been held in isolation for over a decade with thousands more being subject to isolation for any amount of time. It's just kind of like at the, you know, discrimination of the, the warden and the, the guard staff, I suppose. I was blown away by that number. It's crazy. There are five, 500 prisoners who have been kept in solitary confinement conditions for over a decade. Like, that's 500 cases of crimes against humanity. <laughs> like that's that's absolutely ludicrous. And that's like, in one state. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the 500 we know about, right? Like, uh, and and yeah, and and again, like I don't, I'm not throwing that term around there just for emphasis. Like international law regards the practice of solitary confinement for extended periods of time as a form of torture, not as a like. Hey, you probably shouldn't do this, but on the same lines as, you know, literate, like electrocuting people, it's the, it's, it's on that same vein and waterboarding people and all these other horrific ways of torturing people. Like, and the U S has consistently been one of the world's worst offenders on this long periods of solitary confinement can lead to severe mental health trauma. And Texas's prisoners prison system has seen at least 110 reported instances of suicide by incarcerated workers in the last two years alone. And this also, just to to be clear, the reporting on this has all come out of uh, the Texas Tribune, specifically this this one writer, Jolie McCullough, who, I mean, I haven't seen anybody else talking about this, so that's some great local reporting there. Mm -hmm. And one of the core reasons that the Texas uh, Department of Criminal Justice cites for justifying why they've put so many prisoners in solitary confinement for so long is, oh, well, no, no, you see, we have to do this because they are part of dangerous prison gangs. Mm. And I say that not because there aren't dangerous prison gangs, certainly are. But again, using that as a justification to put somebody in solitary for decades at a time is clearly not a reasonable measure. And this strike is aimed at stopping that. And, And part of that is just because Again, these people are put in solitary confinement not for behavior, not because they're part of a gang doing violence, but just for being labeled as being affiliated with the gang. Even if they could have good behavior their entire time locked up, but just because they're identified as being part of a gang, they get subject to being put in solitary confinement. And so, like, and and the workers didn't just start this strike as their first option. The they like sent out months ago this the incarcerated workers in these prisons sent letters after letters to Texas lawmakers asking these practices to be changed and that they should not be used based purely on gang affiliation, but should be used specifically based on behavior. Like if somebody's actually being violent, if you have somebody who tries to stab somebody or something, they're like, okay, we understand there can be some sort of a protective measure, but just by labeling somebody with the affiliation and keeping them in solitary is just, 
it's something that just is untenable for these workers. And they've specifically demanded as well that there be clear guidelines and firm timelines as to when people can finally get out of solitary confinement. Yeah, because when it's left up and it can just be arbitrary, you know, an, an arbitrarily administrated punitive measure, then like not only are people who didn't do anything going to be put in solitary confinement, it's also going to be used like incredibly racistly and, mm-hmm. and in every other way you could imagine to discriminate on top of that. Yeah, I mean, there was a similar strike in California in 2013 that led to prisoners winning reforms across the state prison system. But, you know, in the thought that, you know, it could be used really racistly, one of the things that the communications director of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice said that they have no intention of changing this policy and instead demand that anyone in this situation just renounce their gang status and that the strike was called by the Aryan Brotherhood but activists pointed out that the strike has participants from many different gangs and would, that would never take commands from the white supremacist group. And, I mean, we have to take into account when they talk about renouncing the gang status as to what that actually means because it's mm-hmm. not just them saying, okay, I'm leaving the gang, I'm not part of the gang anymore. It actually also requires them to do things like self-incrimination or ratting mm-hmm. on their fellow gang, or on their, at this point, previous gang members and which can put them in so much more danger especially when this is what they would have to do to get back into the general population of the prison where then if they are known as rats or anything like that they can put them in a situation where they are in more danger Mm -hmm. like it's it's absolutely ridiculous and then not on not only that it actually takes a huge amount of time for these things to to actually go through this long process. It's not like they can just be like, I renounce my gang affiliation, and you know, then they have a discussion for a week, there's a ruling, and then it's taken care of. No, this could take months or even years. Yeah. Well, and it's it's a particularly sickening and devious tactic to go ahead and say like, you know, the Aryan Brotherhood called this hunger strike when when you fight for your rights you're actually a racist. It's like, motherfucker, you <laughs> run a prison. You are yeah. racist. <laughs> well, and, like, uh, and, and it's just so insulting to yeah. people's intelligence where they're just like, oh, no, no, those strikers, it's the Aryan Brotherhood. And I'm like, looking like, you, you mean all those Latino people and black people are listening to the Aryan Brotherhood? Yeah. And <laughs> you expect me to believe that? Like, come on. It's just ludicrous. <laughs> well, you just, oh, no, it's the Aryan Brotherhood. I'm like, it's a prison in the United States. It's not full of white people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's not how the U S prison system works. Like that's not to say they're like the Aryan brotherhood doesn't operate in prisons. It certainly does, but our system is set up to incarcerate disproportionately and predominantly black and Brown people, mm-hmm. largely men. And you are not having a, they, they cite one of the groups the the gangs in here that's participating in the strike is the Mexican mafia and do not tell me to believe that that group is striking because they were told to by the Aryan Brotherhood. That's just fucking stupid. Mm-hmm. Nobody believes that. Like, uh, but anyways, I do appreciate also that like these work, the, the incarcerated workers who have been striking have specifically tried to address these rebuttals from uh, the administration of the prison. They said in a statement, quote, 
The TDCJ's claim that placing gang members in restricted housing is necessary for safety and security has been disproven by multiple other states and the Federal Bureau of Prisons nationwide, who manage these groups and allow them to remain in general population, end quote. So just immediately undermining the idea that this has to be done and it's the only way to ensure safety in the, in the prisons. And so... The strike has been planned to continue through uh, today, the day that we're recording, uh, Monday the 16th, uh, unless prison officials agreed to a meeting with a committee of different gang members to discuss changes to the criteria for solitary confinement. And before we did this recording, I haven't seen any new news on this, but considering the level of response we've seen from Texas prison administrators, I'm not holding my breath for them to actually agree to that meeting. Yeah, well, and speaking of not agreeing to meetings, uh, <laughs> yeah, we yeah, actually are absolutely. back in the back in the news at the end of our episodes is Starbucks because with taking a week off of talking about them, we have seen a huge explosion of news, which I guess maybe just is a product of the fact that there were the holidays and the NLRB was taking its sweet time. No, clearly this is actually in response to me taking Starbucks off our, the end of our list. This week. <laughs> <laughs> it's a personal affront to That's- Dan. It's the only reason it happened. <laughs> I didn't wear my lucky socks, and that's why my football team didn't win. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so there's been a ton of Starbucks news this week. Um, and just to start with, we'll, we'll, we front load the crappy stuff so that we can have the good news for the rest of it. So uh, starting on Tuesday, this is actually from a couple of weeks ago, uh, January 3rd, Starbucks fired worker Ashley Mater at their Willow and Finkston store in Glenview, Illinois. Mater had been with Starbucks for over 15 years, and she was fired for being seven minutes late to her shift after calling ahead to tell them that she would be seven minutes late. Which is a pretty normal practice. I mean, when I worked at Starbucks... I know people who called and then were 30 minutes late and received no repercussions. Yeah. So the idea that you have somebody who has worked for this company for a decade and a half and that it's a normal practice for them to fire somebody for being late seven minutes after notifying folks they would be that late, as if that's even really a problem, is just, it's completely, it's, 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 Ludicrous on its face. Nobody would actually believe that, but it's, you know, Starbucks continued gaslighting move. And so workers at the store have decried the firing as clear retaliation for Mater's support for the union at their store. They've launched protests against her firing and have asked supporters in the area to call her uh, the store and demand that they rehire Ashley and have received a strong response from the community. And again, while Starbucks continues to try to gaslight everybody by claiming that they're not union busting, uh, I can't think of any other industry where you would fire a 15-year veteran employee who has essentially a spotless record uh, for being seven minutes late. <laughs> yeah, no, it's absolutely, I mean, it's it's very, very plain to see that this is just blatant union busting. To continue, on Sunday, January 15th, Business Insider published the horrifying story of Candace Davis, a Starbucks worker in Statesboro, Georgia, where it was shown so she's a school teacher full time and works part time at Starbucks in order to get health care that would cover the treatment for her uh, uterine fib- uh, fibrosis to basically cover the surgery that that is required for this. 
But in what is a damning indictment to, of the capitalist state, the healthcare coverage uh, working for 20 hours a week at Starbucks was better than her full-time teaching job. However, the premiums for such a coverage were so mm-hmm. high that at the end of the day, she took home a paycheck of zero dollars. Oh her God. entire pay goes to cover the premiums for the health care that she needs to treat her condition. And just to get the health care she needs to live, she is forced to work two jobs, and one of them for free. She's essentially an indentured servant to Starbucks who extort you know, her position as you know, uh, what is basically you know, the edge of surplus uh, and just so that they can have free labor so that the health and insurance companies can continue to exploit her. Yeah, like, when I read this, I was just like, wait, what do you... Because I saw it was in a tweet, and it's like, oh, this worker takes home a $0 paycheck. I'm like, what do you... What do you mean it's zero? Like how? Mm-hmm. I didn't believe it. I had to go reread it. But yeah, it's like they literally charged healthcare premiums so high because of the health condition that she has that she literally gets zero money. And I don't know what the worst part of this story is that she's forced to work for Starbucks for free, or the fact that the healthcare that she gets as a full time teacher is so bad that it's a better situation for her to work 20 hours a week for no extra money because otherwise mm-hmm. if she didn't the healthcare cost just to treat her condition would be so high she wouldn't be able to afford to live like if you need a situation to show somebody capitalism doesn't work here you go yeah <laughs> cuz there's this we're constantly told over and over and over again in this country if you work hard you'll be able to make it bullshit who works hard like just working like 60 plus hours a week and one of the jobs she has to take a paycheck of nothing because of how fucked the healthcare situation in this country is. Yeah, like one of the other details in the story was that if she stays at Starbucks, they because the premiums are more than what she's paid, so Starbucks does cover the extra at this time. But if she were to lower the coverage to a point where she would be getting a paycheck, Starbucks will retroactively take those payments out of her paycheck, mm-hmm. basically leaving her in that indentured servitude kind of position. Yeah, like it's... The whole thing is just it. This you read this sort of stuff, and you're just like, "How does this? It's 2023. How is this happening anywhere in the world? Like, this is absolutely ridiculous that somebody has to go through this, and yet, like, we only know about it, you know, because it got written up as an exceptional story in Business Insider. I, I mean, how many other people mm-hmm. are going through similar things like this? It's just. And this is, again, the company that talks about how progressive it is and the country that talks about how theoretically we care about teachers. Right. None of that's true. That's all bullshit. Like, workers in this country, for the most part, care about our teachers, but we're not the ones in charge and setting benefits because, you know, if the majority actually was, I don't think most people would think that we should give teachers such shitty health care that, that it becomes a better option for them to go work 20 hours a week for zero dollars. I can't imagine that either. Like being a teacher is such a demanding job. You're doing already way more than 40 hours worth of Mm -hmm. work a week just to keep up with that. I mean, she must be working essentially close to 70, 80 hours a week just to survive. It's wild. While dealing with a health condition that requires surgery. Yeah. Yeah. 
<gasps> yeah, it's she's in a complete no-win scenario. Like she's done far more than she ever should have had to. And the answer of our system of capitalism is, well, uh, I guess you better work seventy hours. That's <laughs> what we got for you. <laughs> well, I mean, like, it's these very it's, reasons that we see workers at Starbucks, you know, fighting back against their company. And thankfully, in addition to Starbucks continued illegal attacks, we have seen these workers keep up the fight to unionize their stores. And this week we did see a bunch of victories. So first off, on Monday, January the 9th, workers at the Ashbrook Marketplace Plaza location in Ashburn, Virginia, voted 11 to 5 in favor of joining the union. The very next day, the Rock Creek store in Kingwood, Texas, also joined the movement with a vote of 17 to 8. And then on Thursday the 12th, we saw workers at the Baxter Station store in Louisville, Kentucky, continue that city's undefeated streak in union elections when they voted 14 to 4 to become the fourth unionized Louisville Starbucks. The very same day, Pittsburgh got its 12th unionized store, way to go Pittsburgh, when workers at the South Hills Village Mall location voted unanimously in favor of Starbucks Workers United. And then for the- I believe in the tweet I found that was like referencing that. Mm-hmm. That is the fourth unanimously unionized store just in Pittsburgh. That's so fucking. Yeah. I mean, I, that's where I worked at Starbucks. And let me tell you, the people who work in those stores are smart and motivated. Gotta love them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so then for the third victory, just on Thursday, workers at the MLK and I-540 store in Fayetteville, Arkansas, voted overwhelmingly 18 to 1 in favor of unionizing. And finally, on Sunday the 15th, workers at the 2499 and Dixon store in Flower Mound, Texas, Texas knocking it out of the park with these town names. Uh, yeah, yeah, I saw that when I was reading. I was like, Flower Mound, Texas. What a great name. That's so cool. I mean, Rock Creek in Kingwood, Texas. Kingwood is a yeah. pretty cool name, too. Um, so the Flower Mound, Texas store became the sixth union victory of the week, voting 14 to 2 in favor of unionizing, bringing us up to 280 unionized Starbucks locations. Hell yeah. We love to see it. This this is kind of redeemed the fact that we didn't talk about Starbucks because of how many victories have happened. Maybe maybe we'll just have to do like an alternating thing where we take one week off and then they get like eight more wins and then we have a great we have that all together for the week afterwards. I don't know. If we take a week off and too much stuff happens, the next episode will just be a Starbucks episode. That's true. That has happened. <laughs> but uh so that's the news for the week, folks. And as we all know, after the news, you get your uh, dessert. So it's time for the meme review. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. So we start this week's meme review with a Howard Schultz meme, you know, just in <laughs> celebration of bringing Starbucks back to the rotation. This is an Ar- Onion article, which uh, is the title of it. it says, CEOs explain why they oppose a four-day work week. And it's just this quote from Howard Schultz, which, I mean, it's the Onion, so it's probably not a real quote. But I bet he dreamed this or thought it in his head. Says uh, Howard Schultz says, Studies show people with two days off tend to just get drunk and watch TV, but people with three days off tend to organize nationwide militant wildcat strikes. Hell yeah. I mean, I know the difference between a two day and like if there's a bank holiday on Monday and I don't have to work. Yeah, I overthrow a country real quick compared to this (laughs) compared to the Saturday Sunday routine where it's like, you know, cereal and milk, watch some TV, relax. Yeah. Yeah. And so the the next one, 
I think this is the cat from Sailor Moon. Correct. Almost certainly. Okay. Yes. Uh, so this is the cat from Sailor Moon with a headset on. <laughs> yeah, like a call center uh, headset. <laughs> yeah. In front of just like a the neat background, and then it's just this is kind of like a inspirational labor meme, and it's it, it's captioned: "If they can steal the profits of our labor, we can steal them back." One air quotes free meal at a time oh hell yeah <laughs> it's a very cute image i i like this one it's got in it aesthetically it's pretty nice it's got this big uh disco ball behind the cat and the open cat food below it's it's nice mm-hmm. well and it's also like if you work somewhere that serves food eat as many calories as you can as big of a percentage mm-hmm. of your daily caloric intake from that business because you and pay as little for it as you can ideally zero i went uh i worked for a restaurant for a little while and they actually changed their policy because of me because i would eat two meals i would eat one at the beginning of my shift and one at the end and they're like nope we can only do one meal per shift <laughs> like fucking hey yeah fuck you yeah like when i when i used to work at the concessions for the athletic games, I would just like steal so so many hot pretzels. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then this next one is a reference to the uh, attempted coup in Brazil, where <laughs> we have Lula pushing a button that uh, you know with these people behind these cracker these. Br- uh, Bolsonaristas so, with, you know, Dan, if you want, you want to do this one? <laughs> yeah, I can. So this is my favorite meme of the week. I love this meme. It's got so many layers. <laughs> so this is a, this meme was created by somebody on Twitter in response to the like hyperventilating defense of the Bolsonaristas by, by people online who were talking about, oh, it's horrible. They are forcing them to get vaccinated. (laughs) (laughs) Like that's what they're screeching about. And so so somebody threw this meme together where you've got all, uh, they basically took a picture of the, the, the Bolsonaristas from the coup attempt in Brasilia, but they replaced their faces with pictures of Ritz crackers. (laughs) And so they're in, they're in a lockup. And then you've got the picture of Lula, which I still struggle to believe is real because it's such a funny picture (laughs) where he's in a tan suit wearing a black, like baseball hat that just says hip hop on (laughs) and looking extremely confused. I love a man who reps an expansive genre of music. (laughs) Not (laughs) Not even like a specific genre, like a genre that has thousands of subgenres. <laughs> and and then they've got a comically large uh, photoshopped badge on his suit that says Brazilian cracker control president with, with the KKK in the middle of it in standard Maoist English. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then he's just hitting a button that just says Vax, and then it's captioned the Lulog. <laughs> I also And then yeah. I threw up. And then I threw a parental advisory explicit content sticker yeah. on the corner. I, I also love the idea of standard Maoist English. Like you open up Minecraft and you select that. And it's yeah. like, it's like, <laughs> wait, then someone's got to do that. Yeah. Someone's got to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this next one was one that I saw while while doom scrolling Facebook, which really spoke to me as a podcaster. Because what this is is this is uh, a photo of a woman in a white kind of uh like it's a it's a robe gown type thing. She's holding a knife. There's a microphone pointing at a pot on the table, and the table's got tons of vegetables on it. And uh, she's yeah, uh, this is. This is actually uh, probably most people who've seen this don't know this from the meme. This is a 
screen grab of the uh, poster for the movie Flux Gourmet. Oh. <laughs> I don't even know what Which that is. A, is. It's a very weird art movie from last year oh. <laughs> about people who make art by recording the noise of food. Huh. All right. Wow. That's All right. something, well, I guess. I've been looking forward to Smoking Causes Coughing, <laughs> which is a, <laughs> a movie about a Power Rangers-like uh, troop of people who go around trying to get people to smoke cigarettes. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's the sequel to Thank You for Smoking. Well, it's by Quentin Dupuis, the same guy who made a movie about a, a murderous tire that falls in love. So oh, I've, there's I've a heard lot of that going on. <laughs> I don't know anything about this. Wow. But anyways. Uh, but anyway, yeah, the text on this one is uh welcome to the murder mommies podcast where i drink wine and make witty quips while monetizing a grieving family's trauma but first i want to talk to you guys about squarespace (laughs) (laughs) please for the love of god no more true crime podcasts (laughs) if you're gonna do true crime it should be the crimes of like intelligence officers and the military or, or big business yeah or yeah. maybe <laughs> fort bragg just spitballing here <laughs> yeah so talk to seth harp and hear some there's wild there's so yeah. many there's so many criminals that deserve to get the fucking treatment of these honestly pretty uh you know i don't want to say anything too mean to podcasters i Look, guess there there are normal murderers <laughs> and then there's the cia it's not that complicated they're in different exactly. leagues <laughs> well true. i mean if you think about it who's the bigger serial murderer jeffrey dahmer or uh alan dulles and i think we all know i think it's not jeffrey dahmer yeah fair <laughs> it's enough true. but and then so for our last meme <laughs> uh I, I assume this is Photoshop, but I want to live in a world where it's not. Me too. Um, <laughs> so this is a tweet where somebody took a picture of the back of a, a work van in Ontario, in Canada, and it's and it's just it's labeled Freightliner, and then it's got the address of the place, and and the the photo is captioned. That's the kind of commitment I can get behind, and the reason it's captioned that is because. The company's slogan at the bottom of like the van doors is if we can't fix your truck, we'll push it in the river and say we never saw it. <laughs> Thank you. That will help me with the insurance claim. That's right. <laughs> what, a, what a Canadian solution to the problem. Everyone's happy. Nobody had to argue or get in a fight, and you damage the environment. <laughs> the the three mining companies in a trench coat that run the canadian government will thank yes. you yeah. <laughs> all right well with that we want to thank you all for listening please share the episode with all of your loved ones tell them that if you don't if they don't listen to it that you know there's going to be terrible terrible consequences we'll push them in the river and say we never saw them <laughs> <laughs> And if you'd like to support us financially, because we're an entirely listener-supported show, you can do so at patreon.com slash workstoppage. We actually are doing a series right now on uh, realities versus reputation of unions and the mob, and kind of a little bit of the story of Jimmy Hoffa, plus a bunch of other stuff related to the Teamsters. And if you want access to that, you can become a patron. There's also a ton of other overtime content on there. Join us in the Discord to talk about a lot of these things if you're particularly enraged about any of these topics or really just want to have a discussion about the organizing you're doing. The Discord is where to be. 
And, you know, write us a review anywhere. Follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. Listen to BB Bledis. Listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody.